Dr. Pardee, it is very good to be with you, be with you today. Thank you. Uh, if you don't mind, if we, if we can just begin maybe with a biographical section, um, and just really would like to ask how and why did you begin studying ancient Christian literature, ancient Christian studies? Was it maybe give a little bit of detail on your personal journey, key books that helped you early on or that has sustained you throughout? Um, influential thinkers or even at your, your time at the University of Chicago? Well, I guess it was in um, college actually that I, I changed direction. I was heading uh, towards a career in uh, biology because I was a science math type of person and I, I'd always been a religious person but I really thought that my gifts were in science and math and so I was pursuing something that I thought would make good use of those gifts. But when I went to college, I took a course in Christianity and philosophy, and I, I saw how um, it made, my professor made people think. The questions he asked, um, the way he posed them, the challenges he made, were all things that made them think about these larger issues, about God, about metaphysics. And, and I thought to myself, wow, that man has the best job in the world. And, I thought, and a light bulb went out from my head and said, yes, that's the job I want. <clears throat> so I changed my major immediately um, and ended up actually not in Christianity and philosophy, but in the New Testament. When I took a course in the New Testament, I was fascinated with historical critical methodology. And um, the Bible moved from something that was sort of sterile and comprehensive um, and doctrinal to something that was alive and that was that reflected the uh, development of the early church and the struggles uh, both intellectual and social that the, the first Christians um, went through. Um, and so I uh, focused mostly on the New Testament and early Christianity. My first uh, fascination with early Christianity was with non-canonical works was um, in my New Testament class and we were at my professor's house um, and it was towards the end of the course and for some reason he brought up the Shepherd of Hermas and I fell in love with the Shepherd of Hermas. I, I, I had no idea that there were such texts out there and I still have a great fondness for the Shepherd but that really opened my um, eyes to literature beyond the canon. Um, and so when it came time to decide what I was going to do after college, um, my professor recommended the University of Chicago, which is uh, where I ended up. At the university, I studied with a brilliant scholar, my, my mentor, Robert Grant, who, um, whose knowledge of the early church was comprehensive. It was impeccable. Um, he was uh, an incredible uh, scholar. And so I was absolutely, um, very grateful that he was willing to take me on as a student and in fact his uh, his focus on historical data really coincided with my scientific mathematical uh, uh, nature um, and in fact his book uh, Augustus to Constantine is still on my reference shelf I mean that's my one of my go-to books when I have a question about the early church about Roman history at that time period and um, so that was sort of my personal journey that's how I got there yeah, no, that's, 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 that's great to hear. And uh, Robert Grant has been a phenomenal influence within, within the literature of ancient Christian literature and has helped, and has helped many. And so that's, that's great that you were able to study with him personally. Um, if, if you are, we'd love to hear a little bit about um, some of your projects that, that, you have, that you have worked on in the past or some that you're currently working on right now. 
and I, and I have with me the, the genre and development of the Didache, which was recently published um, in, in 2012 by Moore Seebeck. And we'd love to just hear, maybe just tell us a little bit about this project. Where did it come from? Or, or, or kind of your thoughts on, on, on this text. Um, the, this particular work was started out as my dissertation. So it's a greatly revised and expanded form of my dissertation. But um, I chose to work on the Didache because it is an early, I believe it's an early text. It's likely to stem from the late first or early second century. Um, and so it's comparable time-wise with the later texts of, of the canon. Yet it's very much a community text. It's intended primarily for practical um, internal matters rather than theological issues or apologetics or anything like that. But it's a puzzling text too because it lacks a continuous flow of thought. Um, one hardly knows what is happening at the beginning of the text when, without warning, it suddenly changes to another type of text in another audience. And then it goes on for a bit. It talks about uh, baptism. It talks about Eucharist. And then suddenly changes again to a text that discusses what to do with freeloaders who show up in the church. And, and clearly, um, in my opinion anyway, the text has undergone a process of development. It, it couldn't possibly, in my mind anyway, to have, under, have been made sense as a, a written text at one time, uh, written at one point in time from beginning um, to end. Mm -hmm. That means that the process of development holds within it clues to the history of the early church, at least for this community or the communities that, that created it and that used it. Um, and so if we can better understand that development, it gives us information about those people in those early communities and what they were thinking, what they needed, um, and what life was like for them. And so that's, that um, was my purpose in focusing um, on the Didache. Mm, I know that, that's great. Yeah, and, and one of the fe features that I that I found enjoyable in it is that I, f I feel like you combined uh, text linguistics as well as with the study of ancient of ancient Christian literature. I think you I think you mentioned using David Helholm, which is a German text on the, on the shepherd. Uh, there's other uh, uh, discourse analysis texts that have that have engaged other literature in the Apostolic Fathers, whether it be Odd uh, um, Odd who does a rhetorical analysis on First Clement? Um, there's Michael Isaacson to each their own, uh, each their own letter, which analyzed the structure of Ignatius. And so, now you have now provided one on the Didache, which is which has just been a phenomenal addition, not only to Didache studies but also to the the studies of um, discourse analysis on uh, ancient Christian texts, which is which has been a, just a joy to uh, be able to glean from. Uh, one of the features that you do use is is called delimitation. Would you mind just explaining that uh, a bit and and why this feature was then applied upon uh, the Didache text? Well, I'll back up a little bit. I was introduced to text linguistic methodology by David Helholm actually when he was a visiting professor at the University of Chicago, <clears throat> and Helholm. When I would listen to his lectures and, and um, his class, Helholm showed, I believe convincingly, how applying text linguistics to the visions section of Hermas gave us a clearer picture of the structure of the text and, in turn, what it was trying to communicate to its audience. His further comparison of Hermas with other apocalypses showed that this structure was a generic characteristic um, and further that a specific structure is an essential component of any genre. 
So I'd already determined that I would work on the Didache for my dissertation. Um, and this demonstration of, of text linguistics made me wonder what the application of that method to the Didache might reveal in terms of its composition, in terms of the problems we perceive with the flow of the text. The Didache isn't a narrative text like Hermes, so it's a bit different, but I still believe that, that at least such methodology might give us some, give us some clues, it might help resolve the issue. Delimitation is simply the means by which one determines, delimits uh, the structure of the text based on linguistic markers. So things as obvious as titles and chapter headings that are, that are substitutions for the texts that follow them, but also things not so obvious on the semantic and syntactic levels. And when I applied these markers, this type of analysis to the Didache, it showed, I believe, not only that the text is not a compositional unity, but why it isn't. What causes the breaks in its communication? Why do we sense that there's a break there? We sort of intuitively sense it, but this shows why we sense it, what the problem is. Um, but I think it also shows um, why sections are disjointed or disconnected in the way that uh, in the way that they are and so I, I thought it was very valuable to me in understanding um, why the text works and doesn't work um, uh, in some sense yeah hmm. no, that, that's, that's that's great um, and uh, even even within current um, dedicated discussion and I, th I think this has gone on gone on for quite some time is that Didache scholarship is, is still a little bit divided as to its genre. What is the Didache? What does it, what does it offer its reader? Is it, is it merely a composition to provide a church manual, a church handbook? Uh, is it a catechesis, as some have suggested? But you in this, in this book, through means of the delimitation, through means of uh, uh, undergoing an, an analyzation of the structure of the text, argue that the genre of Didache is in fact Didache. And uh, would, would you mind kind of expanding on that on that idea and, and, and what, what is meant by that? Well, people in the past, really ever since the Dodeke was discovered, sensed that it's a church manual. We could conveniently call it a, a church manual. And they also called it a church order. And that really reflected back to the uh, Reformation period where the church had church orders, what they called uh, a Kirchenordnung. So to apply that, though, to the Didache is anachronistic. Um, what was the Didache to the people who wrote it? Um, they didn't have a church order, so, so what was it? And even though people sort of dismiss the title to the Didache, and it seems to be sort of a double title, the fact of the matter is the Didache occurs in that title, it occurs in the uh, preface to the Two Ways in Barnabas, and it occurs in the Doctrina. Um, in Latin, of course, a Latin translation. So I really believe that the didache is, that the word term didache is crucial for understanding at least what the two ways was. And then because the two ways is expanded in uh, the text of the didache that we have, it becomes applied to the rest of the text as well. Um, we can even see that at the um, you know, at the end of chapter 10, really, where, and the beginning of chapter 11, where it talks about teaching, talks about Didache, but that's actually the last point at which Didache is used. And so 
the term is being used for the material about baptism and Eucharist. The ritual material has moved, it has expanded to that. But then it becomes something uh, different, and we don't use the term dedicate anymore for the last uh, chapters on uh, church uh, management, really. We see the didache in, um, in Judaism um, and uh, in early Christianity is often has to do with the interpretation of Torah. And I think this is re it's really apt. I mean, it's, we see it in the Sermon of the Mount of the Matthew community. And the Matthew community, the text of Matthew is very much related to the didache. We're not exactly sure how, but it seems to be from the same uh, location, the same area of, of, of Christianity. And, so, and the Didache, the Sermon on the Mount, of course, is an interpretation of Torah for that particular community. So I really think that Didache is a better way of understanding at least the beginning of the Didache as we have it, and then to see where it goes from there, how it, uh, how it works uh, from there. Um, I think that it actually applied originally to the first six chapters and then chapter 16. I think that was the initial didache for that community. Um, and then it expanded after chapter 6, but uh, before 16, so that the additional material went in, went in there, what was still conveyed by the beginning and end of mm. the original text. Mm. Uh, no, no, that's, that's very helpful, and it's, and it's helpful to hear. Um, <clears throat> Well, if, if you wouldn't mind, we, we, we enjoyed hearing about just the genre and, and development of the Didache, the, the more Cybeck text. Um, but are there other projects that you yourself are currently engaged on if, that, if, that you wouldn't mind just sharing briefly, uh, briefly about? Well, a large project that I'm undertaking is um, a critical description and analysis of the, the Jerusalem manuscript, the manuscript that um, contains the Didache, but also other texts as well. Um, the manuscript's very important since it contains the only extant Greek text of not only the Didache, but 1st Clement, 2nd Clement, and uh, the Ignatian, uh, the long recension of Ignatius. It also has one of only two extant Greek texts of Barnabas. And then it also has this sort of defective synopsis of the books of the Old and New Testament attributed to Chrysostom, but also that peculiar canon list. It's a list of the books of the uh, Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic, but also with their Greek equivalents. And this comes directly before the Didache. And we don't have, we have something similar to it, but we don't have that exact text. So what is that doing in there? Why were all these texts transmitted together? What's the is there a relationship between them? Or did somebody just pull different texts in the 11th century and decide, I'm gonna put all these together? Um, where did they come from? Lightfoot, um, in the 19th century, noted that the epistles of Clement and the epistles of Ignatius seem to exhibit the same sort of, uh, of uh, literary, um, Oh, expansion or um, uh, editing, um, and thought that perhaps that was an indication that they were um, later than the than the text that we have of of Clement and of Ignatius. So the question becomes: Does Barnabas show that that same um, uh, editing, redacting? Does the Didache have any indication that that's there too? Are those texts related to? First and Second Clement and the Ignatian Corpus in 
um, the Jerusalem manuscript. Or if not, then, what are the sources of those texts? Can we separate them off from the other apostolic fathers in that manuscript? Um, is there a clue to the origin of the Didache in that peculiar canon list? Um, so all these questions are require a lot of uh, detail um, to them. But I think uh, I'm excited about it because I think bringing together, pulling together the data on these manuscripts and publishing it would be helpful in the long run for anybody who wanted to study these texts and needed access to this manuscript everything would be collected for them right. um, so that they wouldn't have to go uh, back to Briennios and the original texts right. and things. Um, and so that's why I'm excited. I think that would be a helpful project to people. Yeah, no, that, that sounds uh, quite helpful and, and fascinating nonetheless. And, and just asking, because it sounds like you're asking somewhat canonical questions or uh, at looking at that manuscript as a whole, not, not, mm. not canonical in that sense, but as, the, as these books are Put in there why these ones and mm -hmm. how do these ones relate then to mm -hmm. the general whole that they're yeah exactly in. yeah no, that's uh, that that that's uh, that looks that sounds quite fascinating. Um, <clears throat> well, you've you've written a couple of articles. If, if we can kind of just turn turn a brief corner, uh, you've you've written a few articles. You've written um, uh, a helpful a helpful book and currently writing writing another one, and would like just to hear maybe a little bit more biography. Um, on things that you've learned about yourself as a writer, uh, maybe things you've learned uh, as a researcher and just as a, as a thinker, and maybe if you can look back and re reflect on some of that. Well, I learned that perfectionism can really be a fault. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it took me very long time. I'm glad time. there's others. <laughs> yeah, I, it took me a very long time to transfer this book yeah. from a dissertation to a book huh. um, because people kept publishing things mm. and there were things I always felt, oh, I need to do that, I need mm. to bring in that, I need to check that and check this. And, and that's a good thing because you want it to be complete and you want it to be thorough. But on the other hand, it prevents you from producing more. And so one needs to strike a balance between being um, really honest and, and uh, comprehensive and diligent in, in what one is presenting in one's book, but one also needs to know where to cut it off and to um, and let go of it. And so that is something I hope I have learned a bit um, uh, from, from writing that book, but I also learned that you're always constantly changing, you're always growing, you're always learning more, you're always rethinking questions, and that's okay. It's okay to say, you know what, I think I was wrong about that point, or could I be wrong about that? I don't know how many times I had to sit back and sort of think, Let's think through this again. Is this really what you think? Is that person, that other person, not right in what they're thinking? And I would think and let it simmer a bit because you always want to be honest with yourself. It doesn't get us anywhere in early Christian studies if people produce things that they're not really convinced about, you know, or that there are problems that they're trying to ignore. That's not why we go into this. It's not why we study this. We really, I think most of us just honestly want to know what life was like in the early church, how they produced you know, how they came to the thoughts that they came, the, the conclusions that they came, and, and what they did with their experience, their early experience of the Christ event and, and the early mission and things. And so um, don't be afraid to change your mind. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, I didn't on most of the yeah. larger issues yeah. on my huh. book. But, um, but um, 
you have to be honest with yourself, and it, it's better yeah. off. You're better off for doing that. Yeah, no, that's 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 quite a, that's quite insightful. Um, and now, now maybe for others, because you mentioned mentioned the thing about honesty and 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 just trying to follow where the evidence leads, follow where the, some of these ideas leave. What what do you perceive maybe as as a few book projects, maybe even for dissertation topics for for some budding uh, PhD students um, that that some ought to consider to help the broad area of ancient Christian studies, or maybe uh, a couple topics maybe to hone in on certain um, certain particular texts or certain particular topics within various texts? Yeah, that's a hard question because um, on the one hand, I always come back and, and more work that I'll do is on the transmission of the, of the Jesus tradition, the appropriation of that in the early church. I still don't think that that is, we've made progress on that, but I still don't think we have a good handle on how to describe the different ways in the, which the tradition was transmitted, the different ways that were possible, and how to distinguish the different ways from one another, um, because they can actually coexist. Um, you know, is it is it oral, or is it uh, textual, or um, is it a... Um, is it an illusion, or is it a variant? And, and so that is still an open and... Difficult question. I don't know that it can ever be resolved, but I think people yeah. are still working on it. And I think people still need to work on it to better refine how we at least talk about it and what the possibilities are, so that we know um, those possibilities. Because for the Didache, it's very important as to whether um, a some texts are cited mm -hmm. and some texts are not. They seem to be illusions or from memory or what. Mm -hmm. Are those variant traditions? Um, or are those uh, just um, faulty memory, or are they just, did they not care about producing a verbatim um, quotation? So all of those um, are problematic. But actually what I would suggest that people do when they're looking for topics is just to read the primary sources. Let your curiosity be your guide for what you have a passion for. And ask those questions because it's, People are asking the old questions. We need new questions brought, and we need fresh yeah. thinking brought to the texts. And and um, so, uh, don't be afraid to go out on your own, read a text you're interested in, and ask. Read it over again, and ask the questions you're asking, and see if that's not something you would like to spend time on doing for a project or a dissertation or something. Um, we need fresh thinking all the yeah. time and that's you know that's the joy of young scholars they bring fresh perspectives new perspectives and potentially helpful perspectives mm. to to our text mm. yeah no that's that's quite encouraging to hear just to just to be able to be pushed back into primary primary text reading even even amongst uh, just the difficulty of even staying up on modern monographs to what is the what is the state of research? Yeah, <laughs> the yeah no, it's very very difficult, yeah. especially in this age of computers yeah. and online publishing right. and 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 you know with the expansion there's there's more and more people who are publishing more and more. It's very difficult, mm -hmm. um, which uh, which also leads to I mean I can't emphasize enough that the primary texts are where you should spend your time. If I had to give advice to anybody. I would say, I mean, yes, of course you need to know what people are saying about the text, but on vacation or if you're driving or whatever, <laughs> take Josephus, take Philo, take the Mishnah, take, you know, of course the Bible and, and, and the Epistolic Father is the extra canonical text, but as much as possible, 
try to control the data. Mm -hmm. um, Greek and Roman philosophy, Greek and Roman history, you know, mm -hmm. try to control the data because I think, in my experience, too often people get a sort of a conclusion mm -hmm. that they then try to fit the data into or an idea mm -hmm. that then they're looking for data to fit into where you want, for me, I think you want the data, you want to be data driven, you want the data to um, uh, drive your research and you want the data to um, really push you to think through and you want to be able to uh, judge critically um, other people's work and ideas and the more you know the data, the primary sources, the better off you'll be able to um, judge other people's, um, other people's ideas. So, be data driven in your research and don't be afraid where it leads, you know, because that's, it's exactly what we want. That's yeah, that, that's great. Um, maybe maybe just uh, if you can elaborate on that 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 a little bit because you're already diving into kind of this last question that that I was that I think would just be a helpful helpful way to close our close our time here. Um, but just kind of based on your experience, if if you had two minutes um, to give to to budding budding upcoming scholars or other students interested in entering this field, I think you answered maybe a little bit of it. Um, but what really, if you if you had someone that just had an, uh, uh, their ear was open to you for two minutes, and, and it's all that you'd had to have for them, what what would it be that you'd want to leave them with? Well, <clears throat> from a practical perspective, there's not a lot of jobs in yeah. this field, so make sure it's your passion. Yeah. If it's not your passion, go find your passion, and that's you know the person of faith. So that's where God's leading you. It should be your passion. If it is your passion, however. Go full force, go for it. Um, and um, as I said, focus on the primary texts um, when you have the chance. Um, and um, always be asking questions, bring your curiosity to it. And um, I guess that's all, that's what I would advise. You know, go for it, don't be afraid to go for it, but make sure it's your passion. Mm -hmm. It's it just something that will sustain you, sustain your energy. It will sustain, sustain you, yeah. and it will, yes, it will, if, it, if you feel like it's your passion, your calling, mm -hmm. then yes, that will sustain you through times that are very difficult, because it's not an easy field. There is mm -hmm. language acquisition that needs uh -huh. to be done. There is, as you mentioned, an immense amount of secondary literature, mm -hmm. a lot of primary texts right, as well, right. to, uh, to read and to understand and to absorb. And so it is a large commitment of time. Um, but if it's your passion, it will always bring you joy in the end. Um, and so that would be my advice. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And, and Dr. Pardee, we, we just want to thank you for giving us a few moments of your time. This has been thoroughly enjoyable. And uh, uh, just uh, good luck on you and your research and, and looking forward to further projects that, that come out. Um, but thank you for, for your time uh, that you've spent You're with us. You're very welcome. Thank you.